Um, play with your best friends and friendship. He had a shark that has a mustache for pretty tails. There's second things. Mm, I don't know. Having us do lots of different fun things. To have a good life. Um, forgive anyone else and to help when you can help. Whenever we thrive, God gives us the chance to help other people. It just matters that you are with him and that you follow him and believe in him. To really thrive in your life and do your calling, you have to live your life through God. I think for him, it would be for everyone to feel his presence and his impact on the world and how he can bring all of us together. As we are his creations and he's given us the freedom, he would just, he would want us to be happy. And as long as we are doing something that makes us happy and that will make other people happy and him happy. In my heart, I feel like he just wants me to be happy. And whether that's through giving, you give, whether it's financially your time or your talent or just your love, and you see the, the, you know, the happiness it brings to others when you do that, God would feel like he wants me to feel that way all the time. I think he would totally want that for me. To trust him, have a relationship with him. To love and be loved. Just live a life full of joy that's for him. Just following him and spreading his kingdom and living in um, community with others the way he intended it to be. And I think he wants us to thrive through him. You can have all the material or emotional um, goodness in your life, and it doesn't matter if you're not doing it through God. God wants us to take what he's given us and thrive with that. In the Lord's Prayer, it talks a lot about give me today my daily bread. And so I think thriving to God doesn't look like far off. I think it looks like here and now. I think it looks like immediate, day by day, just trying to, to meet Him. I think God is in the DNA of thriving, um, that we are surrounded by God's presence, and that in everything that we do, that God is there. When what we do is following Him. I think we're always supposed to be improving ourselves. I think we're always supposed to be growing. But I think it goes beyond an individual person. We're growing in spirit, we're growing in Christ. We are supposed to help each other to thrive. We are supposed to help each other move forward. We take care of one another um, and we help each other move in Christ. I, I've been thinking a lot recently of Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And I believe that continuing in scripture and just daily communicating through God's word and um, just prayer time gives us direction. And that's, that's thriving to me. Well, I, I think love is a primary aspect of God's thriving. One has to uh, look at themselves as supporting every other person in terms of their faith structure, and then working together to help uh, others uh, come to Jesus. Well, thanks so much to everybody who's put in some time in on making that video. It's very enlightening. The more I watch these videos that we've been doing over the last four weeks, the more thoughtful I become about thriving past three Sundays, and then this morning, We've just been pounding away trying to look for a good definition of what is human thriving, what is human flourishing. Um, and it appears 
that the most commonly held definition is that on our video, as well as otherwise, which I'll talk about in a second, the most commonly held definition of thriving is happiness. It's happiness. And um, by the word happiness, we don't mean some sort of cheap happiness, like get happy. We mean some sort of deep, um, soulish type of a happiness. I don't think anybody on our video who's using the word happiness is just talking about being happy, you know, like some sort of you know, give me some more, you know, cookie icing kind of happy or something like that. Just happy. It's a deeper one. Now, when we say that thriving is happiness, it's not necessarily a Christian idea, although it's not in disagreement. But um, thriving, happiness is thriving. Aristotle said that human thriving is happiness 2,500 years ago. And Thomas Jefferson, I think we're all quite aware, summed up in, the America's, in America's dream at the founding of the country when we declared our independence that all humans are equal and are entitled to what? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? So, and Jefferson, by the way, just so you know, was a Unitarian and not much of one at that. So, um, you know, he wasn't, this, he wasn't Christian. So these days... Philosophers find really three persistent, let's get philosophical here for a moment, because I've been studying this for quite some time, and there are three features or components to human thriving, philosophically speaking, all right? There is the free self, there is happiness, duh, what we were just saying, and then also benevolence, and these three things these days, in the making of the modern person, the modern mind or identity are these three things from a secular philosophical standpoint, all right? So I didn't come up with them. This is just what philosophers are telling us these days. So just to dig into them here a bit, one, that everyone is a free reasoning responsible self. It gets a little thick, but it's not hard. It's the idea that you are your own person. I am free to be me. I, by my own intellect and by my own reasoning, I am a free person. I am me unto myself. How many ways can I say this? This is the idea that I am free to be me. Okay? And that they only have responsibility then to the self, to their self. They are free, therefore, of all other authority over their life. Okay, that's what's going on here philosophically. None of us, and we are all in this, none of us modern people believe that anyone should have any sort of imposing authority over our life, over our thoughts, and our values, philosophically speaking. That's the first one. The second feature of modern thriving is that nature has provided each person happiness. So I could have put the word nature on here just to keep things clean, but I didn't want to put a lot of words on here. But it's nature. Now, this then will be distinguish and be different from the idea that God provides happiness, right? Because here we are in church. But philosophically speaking, this happiness comes from nature. It is a natural thing. And how do philosophers get there? How did we all get there on this sort of thing? Philosophers say that happiness is natural or, or a part of nature because humans 
naturally produce. We are creators. We produce things. We make things. We invent things. Most pointedly, and this is where the nature part comes in, most pointedly, we produce children. The most base core idea of natural happiness is children. We produce this sort of thing, and that just comes. Yes? And uh, so that's where philosophers are saying this happiness is natural. Then third, philosophers say modern thriving looks like benevolence. And it's not just any benevolence. It is a universal and impartial benevolence. Thick words, universal and impartial. Impartial, okay? It's universal. Everybody on the planet, right, deserves benevolence. Everybody on the planet, no matter who they are, whatever color of their skin, whatever political persuasion, whatever nationality or faith or anything like that, it is all impartial benevolence. These are the three features of secular human thriving. Okay? So this is, uh, this is where we're at these days right now in the 21st century. Now, of course, we are God's people, and we're at church, and so we have to ask this really obvious church question this moment. Does God agree with these three features of human striving? Does God define thriving as freedom, happiness, and benevolence? Benevolence. Let's just start at the bottom. Benevolence. Why, yes, God likes benevolence. As a matter of fact, this is a part of the modern psyche of thriving. This one in particular came directly from Christianity, and it really took force starting about 200 years ago. This is the most recent one on the list, by the way. Now, you'll, you'll be able to tell that you're a modern person if you say to me at this point in your mind, like, really? Benevolence is a new idea? Why, yes, it is. See, you'll be able to tell you're one of these kind of people because you're like, well, that's crazy. There was a time where people didn't believe in being benevolent to other human beings on the planet. Why, for much, most of all human history, Pretty much um, everybody's left to their own, and why should I take care of you? What would you ever do for me? And uh, over half the planet right now still believes this way and operates this way. This one in particular came directly from Christianity, the benevolence one. Right? Okay. So that's a really, really recent one to the list. So, yeah, God likes benevolence. All right? That's good. It's God's idea. Uh, so then let's just go on to happiness, moving to the middle. What about happiness? Does God define happiness as thriving? Well, according to our video and our people here at Lakeland, it sure seems that Lakelanders think that happiness is a gift from God, that God loves happiness. So yes, God wants us to be happy. But Christian happiness, just to get into the specifics of it, Christian happiness cannot come at the expense of someone else. There is an anti-humanist position that would say, I don't care about you as long as I'm happy. Okay? But not within the church. Not within Christianity. That's not the way we define happiness. There is that voice out there, old Ebenezer Scrooge's voice that says, Are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? Don't they work in their good fashion? And those that need them go there. Why don't they die and decrease the surplus population? 
That's what Dickens put in Scrooge's voice. Happiness goes along then with benevolence for Christianity. It is a conditional happiness. It cannot be imposed. Our personal happiness cannot be imposed upon somebody else at their expense. Okay? So last of the three definitions, moving up the list here of human thriving, the last definition. What about our belief in the right to be free from authority? To be free to just be me. Free to be the autonomous self. The autonomous self. You are automatically all by yourself. Who is responsible only to your own reason. Your own thought. Right? Is that a Christian idea? Does God think humans should be free from all authority? Well, the difficult part here is that the Bible, when it was written over 2,000 years ago, and then written probably over 1,500 years thereabouts, that was never a concept. The idea of private, autonomous, I got to be me, was not even around in the human psyche, in, in, in civilization back when the Bible was written. So it's not in the Bible. It's not there. I, I know you're thinking like, what do you mean? Like people didn't ever think of themselves as their own individual private person. I'm just telling you, that's a really, really recent thing in about the last four or 500 years. Philosophically, four or 500 years is recent. Does God think that we should be free from authority? And we can't really find anything in the Bible. What we do find in the Bible is that we find God telling Moses to go set his people free. Let my people go out of slavery in Egypt. Most of the Bible is the exile story. A story of people leaving slavery, going through the wilderness, into the promised land, and then it after a few good years, it kind of goes bad again, and they're basically exiled at home in their own, their own land. Roman Empire and all of that. What you find in the Bible is not an autonomous self, but you do find a large case built for the idea that people should be free. Are they free from authority? Not in the Bible. The authority is going to be God. Yeah, pretty easy to say that. So then combining these all together out of, for a Christian idea of thriving, you find benevolence and happiness and this idea of setting people free. What you find then is this idea of setting people free from slavery and from oppression. That's what you get out of Scripture. Of course, this comes to a real uh, pinch point some 200 years ago, when William Wilberforce and his Clapham sect go all out against the British Parliament to begin to abolish slavery in the British Empire, 1809 to 1837. William Wilberforce worked tirelessly, and finally, finally, right at the end of his life, abolition, I mean, slavery in Britain was abolished. And of course, as we all know, America followed a few decades later. That's what we get out of human thriving, that nobody should own or oppress somebody else. 
Do you hear the idea here, just looking at some of the time, that the idea that slavery should be abolished is a very, very recent thing. Before that, and even in this country, it was particularly an okay thing to have. You could have slaves. Only Christianity brought this out. This is God's idea. And it came at the right time. So for me personally, I wonder if God fully embraces our culture's broad private entitlement to be free from all authority. I wonder. Because it's not a real clear picture out there when it comes to authority. From a secular standpoint. Because folks, much of the political divide amongst Christian conservatives and Christian liberals is an argument about this belief in the freedom that you are free to be your own person and free to reason yourself and that you've got to be you. That you are a self-responsible, autonomous self is a huge debate within liberal and conservative Christianity. And I guess we could say as well as in our culture these days. Now, we find this uh, as part of our strife and our energy in our culture right now. This idea of being free from anybody else does not necessarily turn out well. It doesn't go good even though all of us swim in the water of it. Why? Because when it gets to its extreme, it sounds like Anne Rand. Anne Rand, and you may not know her, but she wrote these words uh, 60 years ago. Proclaiming, she says, I came here today to say that I do not recognize anyone's right to one minute of my life. I am an individual who does not exist for others. And secularity says, amen. But God and people of faith say, that's wrong. In the... In God's world, we are obligated to everybody else on the planet. Are you free from all authority? Hmm. So we, we depart from the philosopher's nice modern self when we get to be people of faith. It gets nuanced it gets sliced and diced. And it's not as clean as you think. Of course, you can all see that, you know, this could quickly go into some sort of political talk here, and, uh, which I'm just frankly not prepared to want to do, and I don't feel like it on Christmas Eve Eve to make some sort of flippant, you know, comments about politics and all this sort of deal. Uh, when it's so close to a Christmas holiday, you know, Basically, what I'm saying is eggnog trumps philosophy any day of the week. And so that's what we got going on here. And I'm not going there. So there. That's great with me because, you know, what do I want to do? Get caught in the crosshairs between liberal and conservative Christians here, you know, on Sunday? Like, not me. Have fun. So does God fully embrace our culture's definition of the good life, of human thriving? Not fully. Not, not, not so much, at least from this preacher's perspective. What we must have right this very minute 
then is the, is the heart of God for this Christmas to be thriving. So push aside all this philosophizing and let's just go to the heart of God for Christmas. This is what I want to leave you with. What does God think is thriving? Home. Home is thriving from God's perspective. I know it sounds sentimental, and it is not, even though it has that. It unpacks scripturally and theologically. Home is human thriving according to God. Home. God's definition of Christmas thriving is home. This taps into the human spirit these days. It taps into the Bible's idea of slaves being freed and wanting to go home, leaving exile and going to their homeland. But it taps into all of us, especially as you walk through the shopping malls at Kohl's and Target and so forth. And then in the midst of all those really kind of lame Christmas carols that are all modern, it goes back to the 1940s, right? It's 1943, and young men, boys, are on the other side of the planet, women too, in wet, frozen foxholes and trenches, men, soldiers on ships, crashing through waves into harm's way, listening to some static radio of Bing Crosby singing, I'll be home for Christmas, if only in my dreams. And when you hear that song in the mall, you think, yeah, that's a good Christmas song. Don't give me that Paul McCartney one. I don't know why he's in that darn thing. Sorry, Paul. Home, folks, is what God thinks of when God thinks of thriving. Why? Because human souls need home. We need a home. We need to be connected to others, which goes against this idea of the self. You are a we, not a me. At home, we find our roots. We belong. Ah, we find our identity in our family, good, bad, and ugly home, like it or not, is what made you who you are. Home is one of the top things that makes us human. Forget about the rugged individualism and the autonomous self and and even benevolence for that matter. When it gets down to who we are, you are a person that belongs. Belonging is what it's all about. To have a home is a divine gift. And those who do not have a home, especially right now at this time of year, those are the ones who are most keenly realize how inhuman life is when you have no connection and no home. Yeah? This idea of home, this is why the Christmas story is the number one most powerful, world-changing, history-modifying story ever done. I am saying this as strong as I can because the Christmas story changed the human experience more than any other story out there. This idea of God coming to be with us at home, home together, is a radical idea that changed the planet. 
None of this comes without that story. Except for maybe some happiness. Home. Joseph and Mary, very, very pregnant young little Mary, are away from home, alone and wandering, sent out on a reckless, unwanted, unbidden journey to some small backwater town called Bethlehem just because some Roman Empire governor wanted to increase the taxes and sent out a census. Everybody go home, your family home, but they're not at home. Mary and Joseph aren't at home. They're wanderers, just like Jews have always had to wander. Exiled in their own homeland, but not at home. And then God the creator, the one who gave us this home, our earth, this one life that we think is so precious, he comes to be at home with us. Jesus comes and dwells among us. And the word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen his glory and the glory as of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. Fathers, mothers, children, sons and daughters, home, everyone. To be together, this is Christmas thriving at its very best. Yes, home is God's gift. And each and every time someone says thriving is all about happiness, and then philosophers tell us that humans thriving is the pursuit of happiness, we must think of happiness as home. Because home includes God. The place where we live and move and have our being is within God. It creates a home and a belonging. To be at home, to be gathered around food and the smells and the warmth, To have a home is what we all understand. And when you get older, I mean really old like my age, and you sit around and you think about what's most important this time of year, you'll think about, I remember home. And then you'll try and impose it on your kids. Try and recreate it for them, you know, your home thing. And it never works, right? Because they just want to go be with their friends. They don't care about, you know, you and your fruitcake tradition. Right? Even though, you know, we all know God created a fruitcake, and that's why he gave it to us. Because he didn't want it. But, um, <laughs> actually, I, hi, my name's Dan, and I eat fruitcake. <laughs> I was trained to eat fruitcake by my mother, who would buy it, and then in small doses, like Iocane powder from Princess Bride. I learned to tolerate, and I now have a, have a tolerance for fruitcake. I can eat it. I've shared it with other people. They get deathly ill. So We try and impose these traditions because you want your kids to be home. You want them to understand home, and so you put it on them. And the only thing you say is that someday, whatever you're doing right now for Christmas... Your kids will say, I remember my mom and my dad and my family. When we did Christmas, we did X, Y, Z, blah, blah, blah. Because you're trying to create home. Home. Now, when Jesus needed to correct, when Jesus needed to correct the legalizing morally fundamentalist Pharisees of his day about who is God, that God is a God who comes to be with us, and that God cares. 
what he did was he positioned God not as some sort of emperor or divine calloused being. He positioned God as a father, right? He actually upset the Pharisees by calling God his father. And so he tells a story, a parable, to tell the Pharisees what they're doing wrong when they think about God. So here it is. It's a parable about a younger brother who asks his father for his portion of the inheritance while his father is still alive. And if you think there's some sort of biblical mumbo-jumbo historical exegetical thing about why a son can ask his father for his inheritance while the father's still alive and that somehow I guess you could do that in the Bible, that's not true. It's just as weird as it sounds to us. It was weird then. The father's still alive. The younger son takes his share of the inheritance and goes off to a foreign land, not home, and blows it. He blows it. Dissolute living. And he becomes homeless and poor, and even a great famine comes in that foreign land. And he finds himself hired out feeding pigs away from home. And in one moment, he comes to his senses. And in that moment, he says to himself, what? Go home. He knows he totally messed up on being a son of his father. He just wants to be close to home. He just wants to be a a, a farmhand. Just a worker. But to be close to home. Well, you know what happens, right? The father's waiting for the son to come home and runs to meet him. And this is what the Pharisees didn't understand. This is what moralism doesn't understand. That the father embraces the son and says, welcome home, you are my son. Welcome home. I wonder... If all our striving for being a self-made, freedom-loving, self-made happiness and all this. I wonder if it's not due to the fact that somewhere we all feel like prodigals and we're all lost. And we don't really know where God is and we don't know what home is. And I'm even talking to Christians. I wonder if we're not all just wandering through this life. Bouncing off everything. Scurrying and hurrying, freaking out. Upset about whatever's on the news channel. Lost. Like so many prodigals. Because we don't feel like we're home. For everything we have in this country and in this life, maybe we're all exiles of our own making. We're all just homeless prodigals. So, put away your secular sensitivities for a moment. Because, well, you won't be able to, but I'm going to say this anyway. Christianity is the only, and I'm getting this, by the way, from from psychology, from psychotherapy. Christianity is the only relational faith of all the world religions. Only Christianity thinks of God in relational terms. You can pray to God, God talks to you. Jews do too, by the way. But Christianity took it to a whole new place. When humans want to create a religion, and they do, 
when humans want to create a religion, they do one of two things. They either create a moralism or they create a reasoning thinking sort of correct your mind thing. The moralism then would be something like what Islam has done. The reasoning um, sort of rationale, learn how to think, would be something like Buddhism or Confucianism. Train your mind in the right way. Impose your morals on everyone. Because <laughs> look, Christianity, let's just get here. It's a ridiculous story. You're going to tell me that a little girl, pregnant teenage girl gets pregnant, you know, by God. Oh, and that kid ends up being the savior of the world. The story's way too silly to be true. You know what I'm saying? Nobody would think this thing up. It's got to be of God because this is a dumb story. Think about it. If you want to create a religion, impose your morals on somebody and tell everybody what to think. When Christianity goes bad, it does that too. No, not Christianity. Not Christianity. Christianity is the one that talks about home and father and relationship. That's what it does. God with us, Emmanuel, is God coming, not to our home, but us coming to his home, God's home, to be in relationship. That's what Christianity is. That's what Christmas is. And that's why this story changed the planet. Indeed, it is a Western perspective. I'm talking to all the college kids here now, because you know, you heard this in all your classes at school. Christianity is a Western perspective. And yet, because of these things like benevolence, all of it has gone around the planet because of one person, Jesus. And that's the story we're going to celebrate here in the next 48 hours. That's what we're going to do is make home that story happen all again.